You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. So now we have modern biology armed with a theory, armed with a language, a mature science, being given the opportunity to carry out a real practical project, a project of immense scope, the sequencing of the entire human genome. Now, what are the issues that derive from that? And in fact, one would wonder, why are there issues? I mean, many biologists would think this is a good thing. We'll get more information. We'll learn more about the human genome. We'll know what it means to have all these genes in the arrays that they are in, in our chromosomes. But really what we need to understand is what are the problems that might come from this information, from deriving it, and what we do with the information. For instance, who owns the information? That doesn't seem like a reasonable question at first. You think, well, it's the human genome. I own it. Everybody owns their DNA. But is that really so? The question is being debated in the courts. In fact, in most countries where this work is being carried out, the legal system hasn't yet caught up with the research, which is going at a very rapid pace. In our country, for instance, not long ago, a few years ago, there was a controversy over right to access to the information by experimenters. A company was founded in Washington, D.C., whose intent was to patent the human genome sequences, to sequence as much of the chromosome as they could, and then to literally have control of the information, to allow other researchers only to use the information if they agreed to certain patent restrictions. This was a serious effort and it was met with opposition by the scientific community. And finally, at least we hope, they've changed their mind and they're allowing access to their data in the same way that all of the government-sponsored research accessible by researchers. But it raised the real issue of whether or not the information itself can be patented. And if so, who can patent it? That really hasn't been decided. The company, in fact, relented only because of pressure in the scientific community in the end. So who owns the data? We don't really know that. And who has access to the data? Who can use it? Right now, it's relatively public. But as the process continues and as we generate more and more of this data, the database itself will expand and will build. And pretty soon, it's going to be a question not just of who has access to it, but who can access it. It's going to be so huge that it might be even difficult to try to think of ways you can use a computer to actually examine the database. In fact, there are many projects that involve just that, designing new methods of data analysis which will allow people to get at this massive amount of data. The second question that I want to raise with you is not just who owns it, but what do you do with the data? As I said, when you sequence the entire genome, in this case the 100 or 200 different individuals, you'll have information about where every gene lies and in particular, what is the protein that is specified by each gene, the sequence of bases. In the process of doing that, we're going to learn where all the genes that make our body parts lie. We'll also know, very often, where different mutations might lie that alter the function of those parts. So I already mentioned, for instance, the genes that are responsible for regulation of cell growth cycles such that when they're mutated there's a greater likelihood that the cell will go out of growth control and we call going out of growth control cancer cancer is a disease of growth control of the cell 
So there are genes, for instance, like the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, which have been isolated and sequenced. The protein that they specify is known. And it's known that when they are mutated, the people who carry such mutations have a greater likelihood of breast cancer, for instance. There are other such genes that are being isolated and identified literally every day. So the question is, who has access to information like that about a particular patient? Well, so here's the scenario. A drug company makes a test that allows them to say whether or not a woman, a very young woman in this particular case, say in her teens, has or does not have a particular mutation of the BRCA1 gene. Let's say that she comes into her doctor's office and knowing that her family has a history of breast cancer, wishes to have this test done. So she can know, given her lifestyle that she's currently living, whether she ought to make some modifications to reduce her chances. So her doctor does this test and tells her, yes, you have this mutation the same as your aunt has. Now, who gets to know that? Does the patient only get to know it? Or does her insurance company get to know it? And if her insurance company gets to know it, can they then refuse to cover her for any kind of problem that may come up in her life as a result of having that mutation? After all, the insurance company stands to have to spend a good deal of money for her care if she develops breast cancer. Suppose she chooses not to live the lifestyle that would reduce her probability. Suppose even if she does that, she still gets breast cancer. What happens with her insurance company's decision now? So the question is, can she keep that private? Can she keep that information about her particular genotype, her genetic information, private and to herself? And this is an issue that, again, has not been resolved by the courts. Clearly, the insurance companies would love to have such information. Now, one argument is that after the sequence is done for the entire genome, and we know the location of every gene, this is not going to be a problem any longer because we all carry some mutation somewhere in our genome that probably makes us more likely to have some or another disease. And the idea is that in the long run, maybe 50 to 100 years from now, if you knew the sequence of everybody's DNA, individually now, and you knew all of the possible defects, that it would cancel out, it would average out the insurance risk. But in the short term, in our generation, the problem is that we'll know actually only about a very few of such defects. Maybe the breast cancer genes, maybe genes for heart disease, maybe genes for other cancers that would increase probability. In these cases, in the short term, it becomes a problem, an ethical problem for us with relation to our healthcare providers and insurers. And so those decisions are going to have to be made. And quite frankly, they have not yet been clearly made. Certain laws are being promulgated or proposed, but they have not yet been passed. So there's the issue of health care. There's the issue of privacy of the information. If your genome is known and it's information made public, does anybody have access to that? Or is that something that's just yours alone? In fact, do you have the right to not have your sequence done? Do you have that right to not have it done? There was a case recently where in the military, where they're doing DNA fingerprinting, which is in fact part of the genome sequence, a couple of Marines objected to having their DNA sequence done and it went to court, okay? So there are issues like that. Do you have any rights where this information is concerned? Now, suppose that the testing is done 
and your insurance company gets hold of the information and you're denied health coverage because of this. What kinds of issues does that raise for us as a society when we're already talking about national health care policies and the other things like it? In other words, as a general phenomenon, is our access to this information and the access to health care, are they related? We have to come to some decisions about this. Now, recall that I said this is happening at a very rapid pace. The number of genetic test kits that are out there for markers determined by the Human Genome Project is already quite large and increasing almost daily as new genes for various disorders are located. And very often, it's not the gene that tells you, yes, you're going to have it, but only a genetic composition that says maybe it increases your probability for having a particular problem, like breast cancer. So we're not actually talking about a black and white situation. So for many of the genes that are located, we're talking rather about a probability of seeing a certain mutation. Whether or not somebody gets breast cancer, for instance, might just be an increased probability. But what if it turns out that the goal is to sequence everyone's DNA completely? So, for instance, at birth, the entire record of everybody's genetic information would be recorded and stored away in a computer. So that everything about you in terms of this DNA sequence would be present for anyone to read. Now, a physician might think, well, that's a great thing. You know, I can have access to this as the person grows, and if any problems develop, I can dip into the database and see if there's a mutation for a particular gene for a particular cancer. But remember the reductionist paradigm we're talking about. If we really think that everything we're about is in fact determined by that DNA sequence, then we have a really serious issue. If that's what this is about, is that really what a human being is? We haven't argued that out yet. In fact, Catholic philosophy would say, no, of course that isn't correct. Of course that isn't correct. And we'll come to the real issue of this reductionist argument in a moment. But for now, that idea of sequencing everyone's genome at birth has become, for instance, the plot of one of our most recent science fiction movies. The movie Gattaca has just come out as we speak today. The title of the movie is actually, as far as I know, the first time DNA has been the title character. The letters of the name, G-A-T-T-A-C-A, Gattaca are in fact the bases in DNA and in the movie it's the name of a big company that does exactly what I've described. At birth everyone's sequence is known. And in this movie which is sort of the ultimate reductionist nightmare if you will, the sequence of your DNA determines everything about your life. It determines where you will work, who you can marry, what kind of lifestyle you will have. Because in this nightmare of a future as portrayed in this movie Everything about you is determined by that sequence of bases. Now, is that really true? No, I don't think any reasonable biology believes that. Any reasonable biologist would say that, no, we're much more complex than just the sequence of bases. But there are those who have bought into this paradigm so deeply that they really think that that's true. And so that's where the fear comes from that led to the production of this movie. So those are the issues that the Human Genome Project in itself raises. That is the sequencing of the genome of everyone. But there's a broader set of issues. What about the broader issue of genetic testing itself? For instance, it's been for years that genetic testing has existed way before the Genome Project. There is a genetic defect called phenylketonuria, which has been known for 50 or 60 years. And this is a defect in a particular enzyme, a genetic defect, so it's inherited, such that children born with this defect are unable to effectively use the amino acid phenylalanine. 
if they get phenylalanine in their diet, which is a normal amino acid in our food, then what happens is their enzyme can't metabolize it correctly, certain byproducts of it build up in the system, and the result is things like mental retardation. So some 30, 40 years ago, a very simple blood test was developed. It has nothing to do with DNA, simply a test for the presence of this enzyme in the blood. So that you could test an infant at birth and you could say whether they were PKU defective or not, whether they had phenylketonuria. And this test is now in place in virtually every state in the country, so every infant at birth is tested. Now, as a result of knowing that at birth, the parents can choose a special diet for the child that is low in phenylalanine, for instance. And as the child is growing up, he or she never gets mental retardation. And when they're adults, they simply have to manage their diet appropriately and not eat too much phenylalanine, and they're fine. So here's a wonderful use of genetic testing, where you've now solved the problem of the genetic defect by modifying the diet of the child, and all you needed to know was, at birth, not to feed the child high amounts of phenylalanine. Perfect example. But that's not the only kind of genetic test that's present. We can test for now a variety of things, many of which we can't do anything about. For instance, hemophilia. For instance, sickle cell anemia. For instance, Tay-Sachs disease. Tay-Sachs disease is a particularly interesting case. This is a genetic defect that occurs when the child is born with two copies of a particular gene for an enzyme that's responsible for metabolizing certain molecules in the brain. When both copies of the enzyme are bad, the child has Tay-Sachs, named after the two physicians who first described the disease. It's a rare defect, but it's more common in certain populations, certain ethnic populations. Now, if the child has this defect, they will be born looking perfectly normal, but by about the age of six months, they'll begin to show some symptoms of slowness and gait and inability to respond properly. By year old, they're really getting severely impaired neurologically, and usually by two years old, they are unable to move and don't live much past that. They wind up dying in a paralytic stupor, a very tragic end. Now, we can detect the presence of the Tay-Sachs defect parents can be consoled whether or not they're carriers. And you can detect in utero the presence of this defect in a child that's been conceived. So what do you do with that information? This is a horrible disease that we know that we can't cure. There's nothing right now that can be done for it. So if a pair of parents have such a child that is to be born, what does the genetic counselor say? And what do the parents choose to do? Well, up to now, that choice has been up to the parents. What do you wish to do? The parents can choose. And depending on their own ethical background, they can make a decision. But what if the insurance companies step in? There's a similar kind of test that's in place in California. The test is for a particular protein that pregnant mothers might have in their circulation. The protein is called an alpha-fetoprotein. In this particular case, it also leads, if this protein is a correct indicator, leads to a child born with neurological defects, spina bifida, for instance. So in California, it's the law now that pregnant mothers have to be tested for the alpha-fetoprotein. And if it's found to be present, they are consoled about the fact that they may give birth to a child with a spinal defect. Now, there's one such case that happened where the woman was consoled in this manner, and she wished to not terminate her pregnancy. It was her moral belief that abortion is wrong. And in this particular case, her insurance company told her, 
Well, if you choose to continue with this pregnancy, we will not insure the child that's born because we already know right now it's very likely to have a spinal defect. So she was being put in the position morally by her insurance company of saying, you must choose a pregnancy or you must pay for the health care of this child. Now she took the insurance company to court and won. And so her child was born and they must care for it. But this is the kind of scenario that's raised by the issue of testing for defects which cannot be cured. Can patients, in spite of their moral stance in terms of pregnancy and its termination, can patients be forced to do that by virtue of not being able to pay for the care of a child that's born? So the issue of genetic testing now is one that really affects us in our daily lives. In other words, can we ethically allow testing to be done in a way that influences our decisions? Now, the Human Genome Project also raises the possibility of another kind of use of genetic technology. The word is eugenics. Eugenics means to improve the genotype and to improve the genetics of a species. Eugenics is actually kind of an ugly word. It was used very early in this century in some very strange and unethical ways. The eugenics movement actually began in this country around the turn of the century and then moved to Europe where it was picked up by a lot of fascist regimes, including Nazi Germany. But eugenics itself began as a movement in the United States, a movement that was designed to purify the species from defect. There were physicians around the turn of the century and in the early part of this century who honestly believed in their own moral code that people with certain defects shouldn't be allowed to live. There were proposals that physicians who were present at the birth of a child with a deformed limb or with some other obvious defect should let the child die, not make any attempt to save them. These were honestly being suggested to physicians and there were movies that were made and a whole movement grew up around this. Movies made to show physicians the problems with letting people with defective limbs live. The movement died out in this country and made its way, as I said, to Europe. But recently, the idea of eugenics, the idea of doing research such that the human species could improve, has increased. Now, originally in biotechnology, the argument was made that one should never do anything to modify the human germline. The way we're constructed, most of our cells are called somatic cells. So, Altering with gene technology somatic cells would be fine. For instance, I described earlier patients with cystic fibrosis inhaling gene therapy agents to change the proteins that are made in their lung tissue and decrease their symptoms. That's called somatic gene therapy. But actually changing the germline means changing your gametes, changing future generations. Now, eugenics aims at that kind of proposal, although current eugenics is still not attempting to modify the human genome at the level of the gametes. One thing that is being done, though, is to alter a parent's ability to select the kind of offspring they have. Now, for instance, in vitro fertilization clinics are quite popular. So people who have difficulty conceiving can go and have in vitro fertilization done, which means taking out an egg from the potential mother and a sperm from the potential donor and causing them to join in a test tube and then implanting that fertilized egg into the mother. There are a lot of ethical issues that I think the church has surrounding this technology. But one that I want to deal with is simply the idea that from the Human Genome Project 
and the ability to tell what genes are present in an individual as early as in the first stages of embryonic life allows these kinds of projects to choose which kinds of genes are represented in the population that's produced. So for instance, you can say, well, we of course don't want to have a baby born with Tay-Sachs, so we'd never cause an egg and a sperm that both carry the Tay-Sachs defect to be joined and be implanted. But what if the choice were simply color of hair, color of eyes, or height, or athletic ability, or any of these other things with which human geneticists might think in this sort of reductionist approach could be determined? There are actually in vitro fertilization clinics in this country who advertise that they have a better ability to test for genetic defects. So come to our clinic because we can guarantee you a better child. That is eugenics in its plain and simple way. And the idea of the Human Genome Project lending tools to that is one of the issues that I think we have to deal with as a society. Can we allow that? Now, we can talk about diseases like Tay-Sachs and say, here's a child who's never going to live to be beyond two or three years old. Well, first of all, we don't know that that's always going to be true. It may be that we develop a way of fixing the Tay-Sachs defect. Secondly, we have no ability to say what the life of that child is going to be. Now, let's take another kind of defect. Let's take a disease like amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is, in fact, another neurological disease. ALS, as it's called, or sometimes known as Lou Gehrig's disease, comes on later in life, usually in young adulthood. Okay, so a person is born and seems perfectly normal, and then later in life they begin to suffer severe neurological defects, and they eventually wind up in a wheelchair and die sometimes at quite young age, even with treatment. So, again, a very severe kind of problem. Now, what if you had a marker for ALS, a genetic marker that told you this child that you're about to produce will have ALS, okay? You'd say, well, maybe we can delete that. Maybe we can forget that child. Maybe some of you have heard of the cosmologist, astrophysicist, Stephen Hawking's. Stephen Hawking suffers from ALS. Stephen Hawking's wrote A Brief History of Time. He's one of our most prominent cosmologists. In fact, he may be one of the greatest geniuses of the latter part of the 20th century. Stephen Hawking's was a graduate student at Cambridge University, and before he developed ALS, he was not really that serious a student. He was brilliant, but he hadn't really decided to what to apply himself. He hadn't really focused yet. And it's been said to me that by people who know him that after he found out he had ALS, when he realized what his life was going to be, now his life came into focus. And it's been since that time that the powers of his mind have been focused on the problems of cosmology. So I asked the question, where would we be if we had eliminated Stephen Hawking's? Simply because in utero it was found that he would suffer as an adult from amyotropic lateral sclerosis. So my point here is that making these decisions simply based on the gene sequence, which is what we'd be doing, simply based on the fact that we know in this patient there is a defect doesn't tell us anything about who that person is, who that person will become. That's the problem and the issue that I think is raised by this very reductionist sort of deterministic approach to gene sequencing and its use. Now, I've called the technique of making recombinant molecules cloning. I've said it's cloning DNA. But earlier I made a distinction between that kind of cloning 
and the cloning of organisms. So let's go back to that now and let me explain a little bit more about these differences. Cloning simply means to produce an identical organism to the one that you started with. So if I start with a group of bacteria cells and I isolate one cell and allow it to grow into a colony of bacteria where every bacterium in the colony is the same, I say that I have a clone of bacteria. They're all genetically identical. And that's where the idea of cloning DNA comes from because remember we put our recombinant molecule into a bacterial cell. So in that sense we've cloned DNA, but what we really have is a clone of bacterial cells. Now the same thing is true of any kind of cell which grows and divides by the process we called mitosis earlier such that all descendants are genetically identical. We call the descendants of that therefore a clone. Now the idea of cloning an organism is slightly different than that. About 50 years ago when people were working on the idea of how multicellular creatures develop from single cells. We start as a single fertilized cell, we develop into a multicellular organism. People were curious about what happens during that process. How is it that we start from a single cell and we wind up being a complex organism with very different tissues where each of those cells is expressing the genetic information in a different way? So the question was asked, well, there's two possibilities. One, every cell is no longer genetically identical. After growth, our kidney cells are genetically different from our liver cells. The other possibility would be that every cell was genetically identical, but somehow the information that was contained in every cell would be expressed in a different way. Somehow it would be regulated so that kidney cells did not express the same kind of genetic information as liver cells, for instance, or as retinal cells in your eye. So experimenters in England tried to do a simple experiment to test that, and they did it with frogs. They took the nucleus out of a frog cell. Now, the nucleus contains the chromosomes, remember. So they were going to ask, is this nucleus from this frog cell able to carry all of the information necessary to produce another frog? So they took a nucleus out of a frog cell and they placed it into an egg from which they had already removed the nucleus. The egg was fertilized, they took the nucleus out. Now this technology requires micro manipulation. They work under a microscope and they have probes that they can see under the microscope and manipulate with tiny controls. Very painstaking kind of work. Now they asked if this would work with the frog. So they take the nucleus out, they move it into the egg, and they let it develop and they see if they get a frog or at least a tadpole. And in the early experiments which were carried out in the 1950s, the answer was yes, you can get a tadpole that way. Very rarely. It turns out that when you take a cell from a frog or even from a tadpole, the cells have been, we say, reprogrammed to not express all of the genetic information by then. So in the experiment that was done, the nucleus was taken from an intestinal cell in the tadpole and placed in the egg. But a tadpole resulted from this experiment once out of 700 attempts, let's say. Now, what this did scientifically was prove that every cell in our body as a human or a frog or a dog, every cell contains in its nucleus all of the information necessary to produce the new individual. We say that the cell is totipotent, totipotent. It's got all of the information. Now, that frog that's produced is a clone of the frog from whom the nucleus was taken. 
So the idea of cloning an organism in this way has been around in biology for a good 50 years. Now, recently, I'm sure you're all aware in the news of the cloning of the sheep, I think the name is Molly, done in Scotland, where this exact same experiment was done now with a sheep, where a nucleus was taken from a cell of an adult sheep, put into an egg, allowed to develop, and out came a new sheep. In this case, the new sheep is a clone of the one from whom the nucleus was taken. Well, it turns out it's not an exact clone because there are certain things in the egg, certain genetic determinants in the egg that are different from what's in the nucleus. And so because this new sheep did not have exactly the same mother, did not have the exact same environment in its egg, it's slightly different. But for practical purposes, we'll say it's a clone. It's genetically identical. Now, when this experiment was done, it was said, well, here's a way of producing animals that we might need for research or animals that we might need industrially by this technique. But because it was done not with an amphibian, but with a mammal, immediately came the question, could this be done with a human? And the experimenters said, oh, well, no, we're not at that level yet. We're just talking about sheep. That's all we're talking about. But the issue really is raised now. Can one do this experiment with humans? Could you take the nucleus from one of your cells and produce what everybody would call a clone of you. And our government, of course, immediately said this would be objectionable. This would be unethical to do this. Let's explore for a minute what is the problem with this? What are the ethical issues that people see? Well, there are some practical ethics involved. Who would the clone be? Would it be your twin? Not necessarily. Would it be a new individual? No one knows that. The legal ramifications of this are sort of not done yet. This is brand new kind of technology, if such a thing were done. What about the kinds of misuses this could be put to? For instance, people have now started talking about, well, not cloning the entire individual, but say, just taking cells out and cloning enough of the body to make transplantation parts, a new heart, a new liver, a new kidney. Just grow that much, right? So making these clones for the production of body parts that you might need later in life. So we'd have that ready to go if we needed it. Transplantation would then not involve any tissue rejection because it would be you. Immunologically, it would be indistinguishable from your own tissue. So you wouldn't have all the problems of immune suppression that occur now in transplants. So what ethically is wrong here? I think at the heart of the ethical issue here is the problem of what we've been talking about, the reductionist view of humans as opposed to what we might call the Christian or spiritual view of humans. Who are we and what are we determined by? Is everything we are determined by that nucleus and that chromosome, or is there something more to us? Is there an ensoulment that happens? And this is what we believe, of course, as Christians, that there is an ensoulment, that there is more to being the human person than just the DNA. And that manipulating the biological system in this way is somehow more than unethical, it's immoral. In other words, we would be doing something where we would be, in effect, interfering with what is a very natural process in a way that we've never been able to do before. So if such a clone were made, the church would argue, we don't know who that would be yet. We haven't really dealt with that. And would it be you? I don't think so. But who would it be? We don't really know yet. So this is the real ethical problem at the heart of this. Now you ask, well, is anybody seriously doing this? Is anybody seriously considering making clones of people? Well, I can't give you an answer to that, but I'll tell you a story. I was in Flagstaff, Arizona a couple of years ago, and I was giving a lecture on human genetics, on biotechnology, and on issues surrounding the Human Genome Project. 
And at one point in the lecture, I talked a little bit about cystic fibrosis, as I've done in this series. And I mentioned the kinds of experiments that are being done in terms of cloning the gene for cystic fibrosis and the possible treatments that could come in the future. And in the audience, a woman raised her hand and she said that her son had died of cystic fibrosis a couple of years before that. And she said that as her son lay in bed in the hospital dying, a physician came to her and said, it's too bad that we're not a few years into the future when we could take some of the DNA out of your son or some of his cells and we could create for you a new son. And she told me that she was outraged by this thought, that the physician actually thought that would be her son. And what happened that was very interesting next was another woman in the audience raised her hand, a woman who's from the Navajo Nation in the northern part of the state. And she said that in their culture, no one could even think that thought. In other words, their philosophical system is such that they can't separate the person from the spirit. They couldn't even think the thought. And I found that fascinating. It told me that there is so much about what we've done in science that allowed that physician to say that to that woman. We have somehow trained that physician in a branch of our science that allowed him to think that thought, that there was really something he would have created then in terms of this patient. So what could lead that physician to say that to this patient, to this patient's mother? Well, let's talk for a little bit about medicine. I teach an undergraduate course in introductory biology and another undergraduate course in molecular biology, as do others in my department. And most of our students are being trained to go on to medical school. In fact, most of our undergraduates believe, and it's borne out by the experience of those who went before them, that the best training to actually pass the series of exams to get into medical school is either a degree in molecular biology or genetics or even better biochemistry. So that all of these techniques we've been talking about, all of this paradigm of basic gene expression becomes part and parcel of their training. And from there they go on to the medical school where they're retrained in this again. They get courses in biochemistry and in genetics and they eventually wind up in the clinics. All of our medical schools, in fact, are allopathic medical schools. Allopathy means the use, basically, of drugs to treat disease and drug modalities and surgical modalities. Now, there are, of course, other kinds of modalities that are out there, but most of those are considered by the general allopathic community to be fringe kinds of treatments or outside the normal framework. Now, what is it about the physician's training that is unique here? We've trained them as basic scientists in the undergraduate years. They've been shown the reductionist approach and its powers methodologically. They might, if they were given this as a professor, been told that ontologically reductionism works, although that's less likely because not every biologist would say that. But certainly they've been told epistemologically that reductionism is the way, the best way we can understand how living systems work. They go on to the College of Medicine where in the clinical years, they are trained as curers. Their objective is to cure disease. So you come to them as a patient and their training is such that they can take your symptoms and lay them alongside a list of other symptoms and decide what disease you have and therefore what treatment you should get to fix that. I use the word fix. So you come to them with a problem and they attempt to fix the problem and make you well, to cure you. Now if your physician is unable to effect a cure, then he or she is trained in medical school in allopathy to think 
that they've somehow failed in their diagnosis or somehow they have failed in their application of the proper cure or somehow medicine has failed them because it hasn't yet learned how to fix your problem. So somehow there's a failure. In other words, there's a very deterministic kind of approach to treatment. I have determined what your problem is. Here are the list of symptoms. Here are the list of treatments. You should respond to this and therefore you should be cured. And if you're not cured, then somewhere along this chain, a failure has occurred. I either have not diagnosed you correctly or we don't know enough to fix you. So that kind of deterministic approach is used in medicine. I think it comes from the training. It comes from the fact that medicine is really applied biology. Medicine is really applied biology. Just as engineering is applied physics, medicine is applied biology. Now, as the physicians learn this approach to thinking, notice that they've also become reductionist in their approach. If you present a certain set of symptoms, they'll focus in on that organ system that is defective. Maybe it's your liver that needs fixing, so we'll fix your liver. Notice that now they're focused on one particular organ system rather than on you as a person. Okay? So they've reduced the problem to an issue with an enzyme system in your liver. So now I have the drug to match that and I can fix it and send you on your way. Now that's allopathy and it's not that it's a bad thing. It works for many things. Certainly if I have an infection with a bacterium, I want an antibiotic to treat that because I don't want that to spread. So it works. Now the question is, is it the best kind of medicine or is it the only kind of medicine? Is there another way of thinking about this that breaks out of that paradigm of reducing it to the smallest element and being very deterministic about it? Notice that medicine is using a philosophical basis from basic biology that is a philosophical basis that goes back a hundred years. No longer true of where physics is today. So quantum mechanics has not caught up with biology nor has it caught up with medicine. Now there's another approach. The other kind of approach in medicine is called integrative medicine. And it's an approach that's been sponsored and pushed mainly here in Tucson actually by a physician named Andrew Weil. Andrew Weil is a very popular writer of books. He's written Spontaneous Healing and Eight Weeks to Optimum Health, and he directs a program in integrative medicine. His ideal is to take physicians and retrain them, to take allopathic physicians and retrain them to think about the patient as a whole as opposed to as parts. It's a systems approach to medicine, or you might say holistic approach to medicine. In addition to thinking about the patient as a whole, physicians in his program are also trained to think about other possible modalities of treatment. They might think, for instance, about acupuncture as a treatment modality, or about other therapies that may be even further afield from what they have learned as standard allopathy. Now, interestingly, one part of his training program is not just to give the new physicians that he's training a new approach, but to also restructure their philosophical basis. Andy Weil recognized very early on that part of the problem with physicians is that they've inherited this philosophical reductionist deterministic stance from their science background. And so he sees a need to take them and retrain them philosophically, to show them where their philosophical stance comes from and what are the other possible ways of thinking. That this isn't the only way of doing science, that science in fact can be uncertain. 
that maybe their cure or what they thought was a cure didn't work because there's a certain uncertainty in the system. Now, that uncertainty, I don't think, is the same thing as the quantum uncertainty we talk about in physics, but nonetheless, the thinking process, the metaphor, is present. Now, in addition to training them to think differently about the patients, he's also training them to apply themselves differently to medicine. What I mean by that is the integrative medicine approach of Andy Weil has another advantage for the physicians. Remember I said that in allopathy, the physicians are trained in a reductionist, deterministic fashion as cures. They're there to fix your problem. In this approach, however, in this new approach, the physicians are trained as healers. In fact, they're empowered to assist the patient in his or her own healing. The idea of integrative medicine is that healing is actually something that takes place in the patient. That the physician is only there to lead the patient to healing, to help in modalities which might lead the patient to healing, lifestyle changes or other things. Allopathy is a part of it. Certainly drug intervention is a part of it when it's called for. But the emphasis is on the entire patient, on a holistic approach. And the physicians who are training in this program, I've been told and been told by them, feel empowered now to do things that they couldn't do as allopaths because they don't feel responsible as much as they did before. Now, part of the responsibility is the patients. So this is a new approach that not only steps away from the standard paradigm of medicine, but as you notice, steps away from the philosophical stance of modern biology, the completely reductionist kind of approach. Now, one last ethical issue that I want to raise that comes from the Human Genome Project, and that is the question of who decides and when should it be decided if an experiment should be done if a line of experimentation should be followed. For those of you who've seen the movie Jurassic Park and or read the book, because the same scene is in the book, Michael Crichton has created a company here which is involved in biotechnology research. The company, as you all know from the story, is making dinosaurs from DNA. A science fiction approach can't be done. You can't really create dinosaurs from taking their DNA, nor can we create humans at this point from taking DNA and restructuring it into a living thing. But in the movie, this happens as a science fiction approach. And as you recall, a group of scientists are brought to examine the project and sort of pass on whether it will work or not. And one of these is a chaos theoretician. Ian Malcolm is the character's name. And in the movie, there's this wonderful scene over a luncheon after they've witnessed the wonders of Jurassic Park and the lawyer and the owner of the company are waxing poetic about all the money they can make and the different ways that they can sell this entertainment to the public. And Ian Malcolm says something like, the arrogance before the wonder, the power of nature astounds him here. And then he goes into a soliloquy about genetics and its power and the misuse of it. And in the end, the owner of the company says to him something like, well, these experiments were going to be done by somebody. And we just did it first. And Ian Malcolm's answer is, your scientists did the experiments because they could. They never stopped to ask whether or not they should. And that's the issue I want to raise with you now. The ethical dilemma of when you stop a line of experimentation, if you can project that what you're going to do is going to have serious consequences. So there are three cases we've considered. Remember back at the Manhattan Project, the project during World War II to build a nuclear device, to build a bomb. Well, there was work done of scientists before the Manhattan Project in the early part of the century, quantum physicists and chemists and the like, who were working on issues of the structure of the nucleus, 
who didn't really know that their work could result in the fission bomb, for instance. But once the project started, once workers started on that project to build the bomb, that was their goal, it was known what they were doing. And actually very few scientists objected because in the middle of World War II, with the tone of the country being for victory, they really believed and have written in memoirs that they thought they were ending the war sooner by building this. And they were saving lives, in effect. There were a few scientists who objected. One of them was Leo Zillard. In fact, he left the project after the surrender of Nazi Germany when it was clear the bomb was only being used to be dropped on the Japanese. Leo Zillard left in protest along with a couple of others. And Leo, as I said earlier, moved to the burgeoning field of molecular biology and was one of the people who joined Max Delbruck. But by and large, there was little real effort to ask, should we be doing this? It was clear that everyone thought we should be doing it. Now, when the first device was exploded, in the desert in New Mexico, it was clear to everybody the awesome power they had created. In fact, no one really was ready for the yield of that device. They had calculated the amounts of TNT it would be equivalent to, but those were theoretical. It took actually seeing the results of the blast to know what had happened. Now, we come next to the moratorium I mentioned on recombinant DNA technology that took place in the 70s. As I said, the experiments were done it was clear what could be done with this kind of approach. And interestingly, at this time, the moratorium was called. So everyone voluntarily asked the question, should we be doing these experiments? Now, you can argue with the answer. You can argue that perhaps the answer was already a foregone conclusion, that everyone knew the experiments were going to be allowed to continue. But the debate was engaged. And to the credit of the biologists at the time, there was an honest discussion of it. There was an honest argument. People with differing opinions were allowed to speak. And yet we went ahead with the technology, but we had the discussion. Now we'll move to the Human Genome Project. In this case, did we ever ask the question, should we sequence the human genome? Did we ever stop to ask the question, is this the right thing to do? As I've described for you, now we had a kind of impetus that was different from that in World War II. There was no war being fought, but we have the impetus of the industrial effect, we'll say. That is, that out of this was going to come something which would be profitable. The use of genetics for testing, the use of the Human Genome Project to produce a product, in effect. And with that pressure, and with the amount of money, I think, being offered, very little effort was given to questioning, except to establish the ELSI funds, as I've mentioned before, so that we had a forum for objection, but not a forum which stopped the work. The project moved ahead and is still moving ahead, even as the ELSI meetings are being held and as people's objections are being raised. The project moves ahead, in fact, very rapidly. So the question of whether the experiment should be done or not has not really been addressed in a way that would allow the experiments to be stopped. If we decided tomorrow that it shouldn't be done in an ELSI meeting, we have virtually no effect on whether the work would continue tomorrow. Nobody's about to stop these experiments. So these ethical issues that I've raised today, the issue of the use of the Human Genome Project, the issue of genetic testing itself, the eugenics issue, the cloning of animals and humans, the medical approach itself that comes out of the basic science and finally the questioning of whether or not the experiment should be done are really the kinds of things that I wish this series of lectures to focus on. Not that all scientists feel that way, not that the majority of biologists are doing things without considering these issues, but that the potential exists. 
the potential exists and needs to be considered within an atmosphere that allows discussion of all sides of the issue. Now, the ethics is certainly part of the concern, but the other concern that I have that comes out of the basic issues is a more philosophical and perhaps even theological concern with the results of modern biology. And it's that issue, the issue of the philosophical stance that biology has taken and the problems that that raises for the further developments in biology. In other words, for advancing past where we now are. It's those issues that I want to come to in the next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.